Good morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The verses we're going to be looking at are in your bulletin. So just open the bulletin there. Our verses are there. There's also a place to take notes. Um, we, looked, we, we began to look at this passage last week, but there were some things there that were so important uh, that we didn't get to last week, so we're going to come back to it, and we're going to focus primarily on verses 1 and 9 today as we dive into the wonder of what happened here um, in these verses. And so let me go ahead and read the verses that are there in your bulletin. This is Mark 1, uh, Mark 9, verses 1, and then 9 through 13. Friends, listen, this is God's word. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they, asked, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. So we are in a series, it's the second week of a series called Following Greatness. Um, sermons in Mark 9 and 10, where we get to walk with Jesus and the disciples as they go to Jerusalem. And, and I want to start by asking you this question. When you think of a great life, what comes to mind for you? And what do you think of when you think of, oh man, when I think about a great life, this is it? I think so often a lot of us think that greatness means glory for me, where other people think I'm great. Um, or a lot of times, greatness might mean that things go my way, right? That, that my circumstances work out, um, I win. Is that your definition? Is that what you strive for? Uh, what you think greatness is will unconsciously or consciously draw your attention and your energy and your effort. Jesus, however, has another definition of greatness. Jesus thinks about greatness very differently than we so often do. And in this series, we are trying to understand Jesus' definition of greatness. It's the greatness that characterized his life, and we're following after him. And so in these verses, there are some strange things. Um, God is giving Jesus, you remember the, the, the transfiguration, if you were here last week, this experience where God was giving Jesus and the three disciples who were with him assurance that Jesus was on the right path. And the path that Jesus was on that meant suffering and death was actually the right path. But one of the strangest things in this passage is what happens after the transfiguration. It's in verse 9. I don't know if this jumped out at you, but it says, As they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them, that's the disciples, to tell no one what they had seen. Right? And so Jesus wants them to keep it a secret. What's the deal with that? We're going to look at four points today, and this is the first point. So let me show you here, if you want to take notes. First, why the secret? Why the secret? Um, if you've been with us for any length of time, as we've preached through the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, you'll remember this isn't the first time he has silenced people. 
right? We haven't really focused on it, although Mike talked a little bit about it a couple weeks ago. But I just want to give you a list. These are uh, the places where Jesus tells people to keep secrets, okay? In chapter 1, chapter 1, and chapter 3, Jesus tells the demons who want to reveal who he is, he tells them they need to be quiet, to keep quiet. Jesus also tells the people that he heals to keep quiet. The leper, the girls, uh, the resurrected girl's family, uh, and then the deaf man. He tells them to keep quiet. Don't tell anybody what happened. And then in chapter 8, he tells the 12 disciples who have just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He says, don't tell anybody. And now here, with the three disciples who go up on the mount with him, as they come down, he says, don't tell anyone what you've seen. And so you look at this list, and if you can count quickly, you can see that before this chapter, seven times Jesus commands silence. Okay, that's not a coincidence. Um, Something special, though, happens here in this passage with the secret. Something special happens with the secret. Um, And before we see that, I want to answer the question about why the secrecy. Okay, why does Jesus want to keep this a secret? Mike touched on this a couple weeks ago, but I want to fill out the answer because it's a recurring theme in the gospel. And if you, if you aren't solid on this, if you don't really understand this, you're going to get confused as you read the Bible. And so, um, so let's look at that. Why the secret? Well, there's really two reasons. First, the news, when it gets out, is going to kill Jesus. And his to-do list isn't complete. So there are things Jesus needs to do. And Jesus knows that when the leaders of Israel find out who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is um, the Savior. They're going to kill him to protect themselves. Jesus knows this, and he doesn't want this to happen until his to-do list is finished. Um, His to-do list includes training the 12 to become leaders that will take over after he's crucified. Um, And he also wants to bring a final warning to Jerusalem for God. Okay, So this is why he's heading to Jerusalem. He's going to pronounce a final warning from God. And leaking this news will disrupt his timetable. Okay, so that's one reason um, for the secret. Then the second reason is that this news is going to misunderstand the cross. Okay, the news of who Jesus is is going to misunderstand the cross. Because Jesus knows that if the disciples tell the story of what they saw on the mountain, right? And if you weren't here last week, get the sermon from our website. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he glows with this incredible brightness and, he, and God shows up and declares that Jesus is right, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Savior. And Jesus knows that if the disciples start telling people what they saw up on the mountain, it is going to be very confusing because the disciples think already that Jesus as the Christ is going to come in as a king and kick butt and take names. They think Jesus is going to destroy all of his enemies. And so in the disciples' minds, there was no place for the Messiah or the Christ to suffer. They believed he was going to come in triumph. And so for the disciples, if this news gets out, it's going to make them think that the cross is loss. Okay? That's what will happen. They'll think the cross is lost. They knew Jesus was the Christ, but in their minds, the Christ is supposed to come in victory, not suffer and die at the hands of his enemies. And so Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone about this victorious vision because you're going to present it as if I am going to be victorious without suffering. And you're going to make people misunderstand the cross when it happens. Okay, but there's something more in this verse that hasn't shown up in the other seven times that Jesus has told them to be quiet. 
Okay, Look at verse 9 again. It says, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Until. And so what Jesus is saying, there's, there's an end to the time of secrecy. It's coming. The end of the secret is coming. There's going to be a time when the secret can get out. When Jesus rises from the dead, the secret can finally be shared. The disciples can share what they've seen. The healed can reveal that they've been healed. Even the demons can tell people who Jesus is and what he's done. And so, now this comes to our second point, right? What is it about the resurrection that makes the secret now able to be told? Well, our second point is that the resurrection explains suffering. Okay, the resurrection explains the suffering. Okay, so I want you to just consider something here with me. Um, Let's go to our next slide. Um, For Jesus, suffering and death are the battle. Okay, and for Jesus, the resurrection equals victory. Okay, the resurrection is a time when suffering will finally make sense. Because Jesus knows that until the resurrection, his whole ministry is going to look like someone who is kind of struggling to win but is going to lose. Okay? Until the resurrection, Jesus' death looks like, hey, nice try. Nice try. You were close, but clearly you have tried and failed like so many other would-be messiahs have come before you. Jesus wasn't the first person to claim to be the Messiah, and he wasn't the last person to claim to be the Messiah. Um, and so before the resurrection, all of Jesus' sufferings would look like, hey, we don't know if he's going to win, and his death would be pretty clear that he lost. But for Jesus, from Jesus' perspective, suffering and death are the battle. And at the resurrection, we finally get to see the outcome of the war. We get to see the outcome of the war. The resurrection means that in his suffering and death, Jesus took all of the artillery, all of the ammunition, all of the attacks of the world, all the attacks of the devil, all the attacks of sin. And in the resurrection, Jesus comes out alive and triumphant. And so the death, the suffering and the death of Jesus, um, it's like him taking the ultimate blow. It's him taking everything that they could throw at him, and it doesn't work. Jesus comes out victorious in the resurrection. I think the greatness of Jesus is shown when we see that he was willing to suffer, that he came willing to do battle with the greatest enemy, Okay, when Jesus showed up on earth, he knew. Like, he understood that the problem with the world wasn't just the religious leaders of the day, although it was. Right? The problem wasn't just the Roman occupation, although it was. But the problem was that in every single human heart, there's a line that's drawn between good and evil. That every single human being has both good and evil in them. Right? Every single human being um, has sin. 
And so the path of Jesus' greatness, right, the greatest thing that Jesus did was to show and demonstrate a love that knows no bounds. Jesus said there is no greater love than someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came and suffered and died for a people who didn't care. Um, And oftentimes for people who didn't even know what he was doing. Jesus came into the world knowing that his success wasn't in how big are the crowds that are following me. Jesus' success wasn't in how many people even chose to follow him. Jesus' success wasn't in trying to convince the world that he was right. In fact, Jesus, and this is part of his greatness, Jesus was willing to be misunderstood. Jesus was willing to be overruled or ridiculed or made fun of. He was willing to endure that without having to prove to the world in this life that he was right. We are so far from that, aren't we? Gosh, how difficult is it for us to be misunderstood? How difficult is it for us not to justify ourselves before other people? Jesus is walking a path that says, I have a mission to accomplish, and that mission, the mission to come and to suffer and die for the sin of the world, I have come to absorb the sins of people that when they do evil against me, that's actually part of why I'm here. And I think Jesus being with even his closest disciples and them not knowing, them not understanding, as often as they heard it, them not getting it, was part of the suffering for the world that he came to do. For Jesus, the deeper mission, even beyond training the twelve, was that Jesus came to do battle with the enemy who was behind the religious leaders, the enemy who was behind the Roman occupiers, even the enemy that's behind the sin that's in our hearts. Jesus came to do battle with evil and with the one who perpetrated evil and who has the power of evil, who is the devil. And that battle wouldn't be finished until Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus came with a battle plan that was mysterious. And he took on the biggest greatness of the devil. He took on the devil's greatest strength. Coercion, military might, hypocrisy. These are the weapons of the devil. This is how the devil defines greatness. Is you being great when you're really not inside. That's hypocrisy. It's you having power. could be military, could be political, and abusing that power by making others suffer so that you can get ahead. Jesus took on the strengths and the power of all of that, and he let them do to him whatever they wanted. And while that was happening, God put on Jesus the penalty of our sin every time that we have acted like that. So it wasn't just the Romans, it wasn't just the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but it was our hypocrisy. It was our manipulation. It was our power plays. It was our self-justification. Because Jesus knew the problem isn't out there. The problem's right here. 
And so none of this would make sense until Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus says, though, when that happens, um, look back at verse 1. This is what Jesus means when he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So this is talking about um, really a a complex of events, like like really a history of about 40 years of events um, that start with the resurrection. Okay, at the resurrection, Jesus was raised with power from the kingdom of God. God unleashed power and brought Jesus forth from the dead. And then God's kingdom power came upon the followers of Jesus at the Feast of Pentecost. And there Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, and he gave every believer in Jesus a foretaste of heaven's love and power and unity. And things changed. That power changed the disciples, right? They go from being fear-filled people afraid to suffer to becoming bold proclaimers of Jesus' death and resurrection. And on that day of Pentecost, that first day when the church in some ways was born, 3,000 people became Christians. 3,000 people realized, wait a second, like this is the news I need to hear. The problem is right here, and Jesus has dealt with my sin. I'm in. 3,000 people said that. Soon after, the number grows to 5,000. As God's power grows more and more through renewed people, these people began to live different lives. Their lives were changed because guess what? All of a sudden, God was there with them. They had the power of God, and all of a sudden, suffering was different. Their perspective changed. They began to live lives of love and power and unity. And more and more people began follow Jesus. And then the 12, back to the 12, they begin to sacrifice their lives one by one because they're testifying that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. People who before ran away and fled, like I said, they're now being arrested. They are suffering some of the world's worst atrocities and they are willingly giving their lives for Jesus. And then finally, this verse came true in 70 A.D., when the Roman army would come and bring an end to Jerusalem and the temple. That was judgment against a nation who rejected and crucified their Messiah. And some of Jesus' disciples were alive to see all of this. Some of those disciples, just as Jesus promised in verse 1, he made the promise and it all came true within that generation. Within that 40-year period of time, all of these things came true. And so Jesus is explaining this. He's talking about how the resurrection explains it. And even though he explained it, the disciples still didn't understand. Look at verse 10. It says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This is one of the places where I love the Bible. I love it because it's so honest about its heroes. The Bible's heroes, other than Jesus, are so imperfect, right? The men and the women who followed after Jesus, they were not perfect, and they're honest about their failures. And so here the disciples are like, yeah, we had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) These are things that give us a sense of trust, but this brings us to our third point, third point out of four. Disciples have no category for this. 
Jesus tells them, look, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. The disciples, they just didn't have a clue. They didn't understand what rising from the dead meant. Now, okay, I want to explain some things about first century Judaism. Okay, there were lots of different kinds of thinking uh, in Judaism. Um, And it's not that the disciples didn't believe in resurrection. They just didn't believe that what Jesus was saying was possible. Okay? They, didn't, they couldn't conceive of the idea that someone could rise from the dead. Okay? So I want to explain. Um, along with many Jews, the disciples believed in the resurrection of the dead. Okay? They believed, and what that meant, the resurrection of the dead meant that everyone who was dead would be raised at some point at the end of history. Okay, that was their belief. They believed that at the end times, um, that everyone would be, that all the people of the dead, so it was the resurrection of the dead, that that would happen, that everyone would be raised, and the resurrection would happen at the end of history. Okay, that was their thinking about the resurrection. Okay, but what Jesus is saying, and what the disciples had no category for, they had no category for the resurrection from the dead where someone would be raised sort of out of the realm of the dead. So you have all these people that have died in human history, right? They're all going to be raised in the end. The disciples had no category for the idea that one person would be raised from out of that dead. Um, And heck no, in the middle of history. Okay? And so when Jesus says, um, when the Son of Man had risen from the dead, he's basically saying, look, what I'm telling you is that I am going to rise from the dead in the middle of history. And the disciples were like, this just doesn't, like, doesn't compute. It would be like telling somebody a hundred years ago, hey, I sent you an email. Be like, I saw the pony just go by and I don't know what you're talking about. Now, look, this kind of sounds like semantics. I mean, the resurrection of the dead versus resurrection from the dead. But, I mean, this is, this is everything. They didn't understand how any one person, um, it changed everything about how they saw life. And it will also change everything about the way that we see life. Okay, what do I mean? Well, I just want to show you just sort of a, an application of this. Okay, the disciples' worldview is sort of there in the middle. And Jesus' view, though, is on the right. And so what is suffering? Well, for the disciples, suffering meant that you are being beaten. Like, not beaten physically, but you're being beaten in the the fight. But for Jesus, suffering was actually engaging in the war. Okay? Death to the disciples was proof that you lost and that the war was over. But for Jesus, death was the climactic battle. It was the ultimate nuclear bomb that his enemies could throw at him. And so the resurrection for the disciples, again, they didn't have a category for this, but for Jesus, the resurrection means that he is declared victorious. Jesus' resurrection gives us new categories to interpret our lives. Okay, and there are times when Christianity will do this. There are times when Christianity will give you new categories. Okay, they're, they're, I mean, our world is so good at 
man, it's saying, look, there's two options. You've got two options to choose from. Which side are you on? Right? Isn't this what happens every four years, every two years in politics? Right? There are two options. You're either a Republican or you're a Democrat. Now, which is it? How frustrating is that when you have a sense of a moral compass and an ability to see that, you know what, I actually think there are things that Jesus is for on both sides of the aisle. And I think actually there's things Jesus is against on both sides of the aisle. And so even if I did identify with one party or the other, that is not my identity. So the gospel gives us a third way of looking at things. Um, We think that sort of freedom and rules are polar opposites. You either live your life under the rule of someone else or you live in freedom. With Jesus, these things come together. With Jesus, forgiveness that brings freedom and authority go together in the gospel. And so Jesus demands everything from us. Jesus demands complete and total obedience from us. And yet pronounces, before we take a step in his direction, he pronounces that we are forgiven and accepted and loved forever. Man, like that's a third way. You don't find that anywhere else. And so the disciples didn't have a category for this. And Jesus understood that actually part of his suffering was that he would end up going completely alone down this path. And he was willing to do it. And this brings us to then our last point. What does this mean for us? So for us, suffering and death are also the battle. What Jesus is doing here is he is planting the seeds of his word into people. His truth about what is going to happen to him Um, They're like seeds that get planted into our hearts. And for the disciples, they didn't sprout up right away. So often for us, it doesn't sprout up right away. But Jesus plants into people. And what he tells us is that, look, outward greatness is in the future. Okay? If you are aiming for a life where everything works out for you, that is not what Jesus has. So that's, if, I mean, if that's what you're looking for, Jesus is not the right path um, because that's not what he delivers. Um, and this is really what the disciples are missing, and so often this is what we're missing, right? They think and we think that glory and victory are the opposite of suffering. If you're suffering, then you're not experiencing glory. Um, victory does not uh, equate with glory or, or with suffering, I'm sorry. Um, We think greatness is winning in this life, but Jesus tells us it's not. Greatness in Jesus' mind is doing and following Jesus' path, which means focusing on loving God and loving others and waiting for God to give you victory. That's Jesus' greatness. We read about it in 1 Peter 3 when Chad gave us the assurance of forgiveness. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't lash back out at people, but instead 
He held it. He absorbed the punishment and he trusted himself to God who judges justly. You can try to conquer by force and we do this. This is a constant temptation for us. Um, When you get into an argument, right, and your voice level goes up and you start to yell, that's you using force to win. You can do that. Um, And if you can shut down the person you're arguing with, you might think, oh, hey, I won. I'm great. Evaluating yourself. Yeah, I told him. I told her. But when you win that way, you're actually using the tools of violence and coercion to conquer. And so you might win, but guess whose side you're on now? You're not winning for Jesus. You're not winning in a way that actually makes you the renewed version of you that God is working in you. Actually, what you're doing is you're saying, devil, sin, I'm going to use your tools, I'm going to use your weapons to fight this fight. And you end up on that side. This happens in marriage. This happens in dating relationships. This happens with parenting. This happens with friendships. This happens in work relationships. Right? Where we succumb and use tools that Jesus doesn't give us because we want to be great, because we need to be right. And so often, it's because inside, we don't feel like we're enough. So often, we do this because, gosh, if I don't win this, then what am I anyways? For Jesus, greatness is the power of love. It's being willing to absorb and to forgive sin. Because by absorbing it and not lashing out in return, we overcome the power of sin. In a way that is similar to the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection shows that they dropped the nuclear bomb on him and he emerged victorious. When someone lashes out at you and you don't respond that way, but instead you respond with understanding and listening and love. This doesn't mean being a doormat, by the way. Like, this just means not responding in the same fashion. When you do that, you show that there is a strength and a power in you that comes from Jesus that is stronger than the sin that they've inflicted on you. When we react with violence, when we react and yell, when we react and lie or cheat or steal, when we react that way to the stuff that goes, then what happens outside of us that's done to us actually gets in us and then comes out of us. But Jesus says that greatness comes as we suffer in the battle, as we're willing to suffer. And so we actually fight the battle with the cross. Okay? And that doesn't mean, uh, so it does mean that the cross becomes our weapon. Okay? Not because we grab the cross and we hit other people with it. Okay? Not how that works. Um, But what happens is, that we climb upon the cross and we take other people's sin and we don't respond the way they respond to us. Instead, we give them understanding and forgiveness 
and love. And so we let other people hit us with their sin. This, I'm not saying that I'm not talking about abuse here. If you're being abused, you need to get help. We need to get you the heck out of that situation. Um, letting people abuse you is not what we're talking about here. Okay, but again, it's when things go wrong in life. Um, it's trusting God. It's not getting bitter. And so we let our circumstances hit us. We let our suffering hit us, and we don't buckle under the pressure. The only way, the only way that we can do this is if it's been done to you. The only way you won't think I'm crazy about this, right? It's kind of the same thing about the resurrection from the dead. The disciples are walking around going, I don't understand what he's talking about. We also can hear this and go, there is no way in the world that's going to work. There's no way on earth I'm going to do that. I'm not going to take the punishment from other people. Are you crazy? That's ridiculous. This calls you to a life that oftentimes will not be understood except by those who have had Jesus look them in the eye and say to them, look, I know your sin and I forgive you. I know what you've done. I know everything that you've done. I know not just what you've done to them, but I know what you've done to me. And I want you to know that I understand I love you, and I forgive you. Friends, when you've had that experience with Jesus, here's what happens. You're finally able to be honest about just how much you've done, and you sort of get your sins out and put them all in a pile. And that pile is like, I still, like, I lost sight of the top, I don't know, about 12 years ago, okay? It's really, really tall for me. When someone else sins against me, here's what I do. I look at my pile of sin against Jesus. And then I look at the sin that they've committed against me. And I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying that there isn't real suffering. But truth be told, maybe it's up to here. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I'm 42, so I've got a big pile. I'm 41. I've got a big pile here. And it's only when Jesus has looked you in the eye and told you, and you have been enveloped by the love of Jesus, that you could possibly say, gosh, I actually want to absorb this sin so that you can get a taste of what it's like for Jesus to love you. That's, that's greatness. That's greatness, according to Jesus. Man, it's not strolling through life with everything going your way. It's actually experiencing the difficulty and the brokenness of life and being strong enough to respond the way Jesus did. I mean, this is going on in South Carolina, isn't it? I mean, right now, this tragedy is showing the strength of their faith. Right? We would never know about their faith if this didn't happen. Right? And no one is ridiculing them now. Like, no one's making fun of these folks. They are put out 
right? They are, I mean, we get to see them. People are celebrating them. In some ways, they're getting a foretaste of the resurrection, right? They are getting a foretaste of the amazing declaration God is going to make over their lives, over the life of that church. There was a, an atheist who tweeted this this week, you know, experiencing this South Carolina stuff. He says, look, I don't believe in God, but man, this is a good commercial for him. This is what happens. I read the most compelling article this last week um, from Point Loma Nazarene's quarterly newsletter, or it's a magazine, it's called Viewpoint. It's got this amazing article about persecution and the suffering of the church today and what's going on today. I would highly recommend you all read it, but wait a few weeks because I'm going to be quoting from it for the next month or so. Um, uh, the vice provost at Point Loma Nazarene, her name is Dr. Maggie Bailey. She said this, um, she's come to understand one of the most significant truths of the gospel. We have to love people into the kingdom. It doesn't matter how terrible the persecution. The commandment of God is to love your enemies. This profound lesson was made plain to her when she looked down the barrel of a Russian machine gun. Okay, this woman is still alive. and She's the vice provost at Point Loma. Okay, this isn't ancient history. This is going on right now. She looked down the barrel of a Russian machine gun. While she was ministering among the underground churches in Eastern Europe, she was held at gunpoint for three hours, surrounded by a crowd that could offer no help. In the midst of her ordeal, unable and unwilling to defend herself, Bailey experienced God. He didn't provide a means of escape, but he manifested himself instead. She said this, the manifest presence of God came over me and suddenly I thought, I love this man who is pointing a gun at me. God gave me his love for my assailant and he gave me his words to say. God empowered me to treat this young man like he was my son. It was amazing. And eventually, the man just gave up. There is no greater greatness than suffering and facing it boldly. This is us taking the brokenness of our own lives, taking the brokenness of the people that we know and love, taking the brokenness of the city, taking the brokenness of life in general, and facing it boldly. It's holding on to Jesus. It's, it's refusing to stop loving. It's continuing to go the second mile and the third mile to forgive over and over and over again. And we think we need to be publicly praised. We need to be understood and justified. no. No, we don't. We need to trust that God is in control, that Jesus has already walked the path of greatness, that he himself has been raised from the dead, and we too will be if we follow him. Man. Friends, we have a huge vision for our city. 
We want to see the city renewed spiritually, socially, culturally. We want to see the workplaces of San Diego renewed. We want to see neighborhoods and our homes renewed. Does our willingness to suffer match that vision? Let's pray together. Jesus, we need you so much. And we thank you for coming and for being misunderstood because we are so often misunderstood. We thank you for understanding us and dying for us, rising from the dead in the middle of history so that we can be sure that your path to greatness is our path to greatness. Jesus, help us to be willing to suffer and to embrace it even with joy knowing that we're getting an opportunity to overcome the power of evil and sin in the world. Strengthen us as individuals, but also strengthen us as a community, because we can't do this alone. We need each other to be reminded. We need to remind each other of these things, and so, Lord, help us. And, Jesus, you know that there are, those, there are some here who don't yet trust in you, and we pray that you would touch their hearts and let them know that no matter how big the mountain of sin, this is why you came, to set them free and to give them the forgiveness and the assurance and the approval that they long for. So help us all to bow our knee again to you and use us in our willingness to suffer to show forth your love and your power so that we might see our city renewed. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.